my name is Patrick and I'm a lovable guy. And by the end of my two hour, I mean, my 30 minute talk, you'll probably see that I qualify for this fellowship, this program. What a pleasure, honor, you name it. I haven't been to Tusnua before. Um, I hope it's not my last time either, because uh, there's just something, you know, I, I belong to the Wednesday, Friday, Secular Ireland group, and that is uh, as special as it gets for me. You know, this is what Zoom has allowed is this type of participation where we can find our place. Doesn't matter that it's, you know, in a meeting around the corner or around the world, right? And so many of you I see, you know, from Jeb to Tommy, Frank and Annie and Damien, you know, it just goes on and on. James, hey, you know, I love looking out and seeing people that that I see in other parts of the world, even though they're from the my my chair right here, right? So it's my job to give you a little bit about where I've come from and what happened to me and what it's like today. And I'll do that as, as well as I can. Um, we'll start out, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was the, the last of five children, a very, an Irish Catholic family, very much uh, unexpected. You know, my, my brothers and my sister are, uh, the two surviving ones now are 80 and, uh, and 79 years old and I'm 64 so it kind of gives you an idea right so in many ways I kind of grew up as an only child my, my father was was born in a place well he's born I think he was born in Dublin in the hospital but but raised in Rathcool uh, just outside of Dublin and, and uh, his mother was from a little place called Chapel Lizard Danny and I were just talking about Chapel Lizard yesterday that that uh, the Kellys were grocers in Chapel Lizard so certainly um you know, there's some Irish roots there, I guess, that, that really made me attracted to it. But after going to Ireland and meeting the Irish, I, I can't tell you how warm I feel towards Ireland and its people. And, and as soon as this wave of whatever's still going on and that I can come back to Ireland, I will be there, you know, and uh, to be able to meet some of you in person would be such an honor. So anyway, um, my father was uh, was a fun-loving guy, um, you know, a real song and dance man. He knew every Irish song there was. Even though he was a boy when he left Ireland, he he never forgot where he came from, and and it it meant the world to him. You know, um, it's funny here in Canada during the war, if because the country was full of Irish, Scots, and and uh, uh, Brits and people from Wales at that time, if you, when you went in the war like you went in the Irish regiment or the Scottish regiment and you know and my father served um, in Holland for the last couple of years of the war right and I think when he came home from that uh, he was a different man you know I, I gather that from from my mother and um, and just what went on with his life you know it's it's I, I had a warm relationship with him um, because he loved me dearly you know uh, his alcoholism, unfortunately, uh, kind of led to a life of irresponsibility, and uh, <clears throat> we moved all the time. You know, I went to 19 different schools. You know, uh, after the 10th time of being the new kid, you know, I had to learn how to box to take care of myself because, you know, you're going to be challenged, right? So that was difficult. You know, you you come to know, at least I came to know that that if there was a 12th school, there was probably going to be a 13th and a 14th, you know, it, it kind of comes to you. And, and along the way, I didn't realize the role that alcohol was playing in this, 
you know i remember being like again because my father wasn't particularly violent he didn't didn't show that side of himself uh just the you know love to sing and and drink a lot of pints right but again it had an effect on the family like most of my siblings, as I said, I grew up as a, an only child in many ways because the moment they could get out of the house, they were gone. You know, my sister was married at 17. My brother, probably at 14, my, my closest in age brother, was out of the house as often as he could be, you know? So it, it was difficult times. And, and my mother and I, 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 there was a side of me that, that I knew I could get my own way with my father. And his voice kind of ruled the house. So whenever my mother tried to instill something into me, uh, I just knew I could go around her to him and I could get my way, you know? So I began to manipulate pretty early on in life, right? Um, if I wanted to have sugar pops for supper, then I would. To this day, that kind of behavior makes discipline so, so challenging. Any change I make in my life today is like, Oh my God, it, it takes time and, you know, I'll get into that in a few minutes. So anyway, um, you know, I sort of had that, that relationship where I, I remember, I, I've shared this, that, that I remember my dad coming home looking for money to drink. And it was the one night that I saw him angry. I guess my mother had hidden the money for food or, you know, rent or whatever, right? But he needed it for alcohol. And he started to tear the kitchen apart, pulling drawers out. And I, I just stood there like, who is this man you know and uh and it was at that moment i realized the role that alcohol was playing in this right i was finally old enough and aware enough and, and i remember distinctly telling my mother never ever ever will i touch that mom you know because i could i could now see what was happening so along we go life got more and more difficult i i felt very poorly about myself you know um that's a sad thing that children take on shame like i did as a result of someone else's behavior you know and I, again i i'm not blaming his alcoholism on my story or my my own addiction but it's the way it was i would have told you in my adult life in my recovery i would have said well you see my mother was a codependent my father was an alcoholic so her go codependency to his alcoholism meant that she couldn't pay attention to me blah 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 but that's not what it felt like as a little boy, you know? I felt very alone. I felt uh, incredibly uh, the new kid all the time. So always waiting to be rejected, you know? Unfortunately, my mother just was a cold human being. Like her deal with him and, and where she'd come from just made her incapable of really showing any love and affection. She just wasn't capable, right? Today, I accept that and again, you know, recovery has been the tool to to putting to rest these feelings that I had and these experiences, right? So by the time I'm 13 years old and I'm offered alcohol, this promise to mother, it goes right out the window. It doesn't even exist, right? And it, it's, it, it still boggles my mind to this day that, that I could see alcohol in the home and experience that and the first time it comes to me, even though it's this god awful sauterne wine, that you know, just getting it into your stomach was a challenge at 13. This stuff was so vile, right? But some part of me knew, knew that this was going to change how I felt in a good way. I, I no question about it, because I made sure I got enough of it in me to have that feeling, you know, that one that we continue to chase through 
alcoholism. And, uh, and it grabbed me right away. After that, school didn't matter. Um, it's funny, we were talking about reading yesterday. And one thing my father loved to read, he would read, like he would recite the, the Merchant of Venice to me when I was like four years old, you know, this sort of thing. So he, he, he challenged me that way. And it, it became a, uh, an important thing as I bounced to these schools, I, I would have, I, I don't know what would have happened uh, as far as learning, had I not had this love of reading, plain and simply, because I was never connected to school, right? Couldn't be, I wasn't there long enough, right? So anyway, um, that's what started to happen was I, I planned my weekend around, you know, what's it cost to get a bottle of wine, a bag of pot, get to the school dance, right? And of course, I had had this shyness with women, like really a serious fear of rejection, and uh, alcohol cured it instantly i could actually go up and say zoe would you like to dance with me i couldn't do that without all so of course who's not going to want that you know um so again I, I was i felt empowered by it but it, it grabbed me so quickly by the, that by the time i was 15 i was drinking every day um doing lots and lots of drugs and uh you know i, I would i was vomiting blood at 15 because of the taking alcohol in and not eating and and I, I remember, you know, my solution was you have to drink some milk, maybe even eat something, right? That'll that'll fix this, right? So that gives you an idea of how quickly it it hit me like a ton of bricks, right? We moved to Florida. That was a real culture shock for me. I found life, I found the people that I met there just a lot more assertive than Canadians were, you know? And that was not that, the, you know, I have lots of American friends to this day, lots of them in this room. Um, but it was still a culture shock for me. I, I found it, you know, wild and, and it was psychedelics time and we were hippies and, you know, so we went down that road a lot, but it's funny for me, alcohol was my friend. That's the way I looked at it. I do so many psychedelics that I, you know, go to the edge of, of insanity and, uh, you know, have bad trips and just freak myself out to the point that I'd have to stop doing LSD and come back to alcohol because alcohol wouldn't do that to me. Alcohol wouldn't let me down, you know? Um, and so it went on like that, right? Uh, it didn't matter what, I, you know, the cocaine, I went down that road seriously for a number of years. And uh, again, my solution was to have some alcohol, right? And then my best friend died of an overdose of heroin at, when we were 24. And I, I, I remember thinking, thank God I didn't go down that road I had, when I was in my teens, I had a bunch of operations where I was hospitalized and had a lot of needles at that time. So then when the, in addiction, when the opportunity, when people started to put needles in their arms, I just wasn't interested because I'd had so many in me, you know? Thank God, because it, it had killed me too, I'm sure of it, you know? But anyway, we, we move along a bit here. I, I, um, I was, out of control from the first, right? Through my teens, into my 20s. I'm 21, I'm working at a, at a big hotel in downtown Toronto and I get sent to, uh, I get sent to treatment, to day treatment because I, I, you know, I have an excuse for everything. I never show up to work and I, my feet are too sunburned to go to work, I, you know, this. I told a story yesterday that was, that, that, that just speaks to the heart of my addiction. I. The, the excuses were so old with work. I, I phoned one day and I said, 
I hit a, a child. I hit a young boy on my way to work, right? And he broke his leg and I'm at the hospital. And as I'm talking to my boss, I'm choked up with emotion. And I remember thinking, fuck, man, you, you'll go to any length for this shit, you know? Um, but today I look at it and I see that the sadness of where addiction had led me made bringing that emotion about quite easy, you know? Um, still, that didn't wake me up. And it's funny, my, my boss had been raised by an alcoholic and his, his mother uh, was an Al-Anon member and he'd been an Alateen. So he knew kind of how to not put up with my shit, right? Um, it didn't work. I started going to AA meetings in around 1979 or 80 and, and just wasn't ready, you know? Uh, didn't like anything about it, right? Compared rather, I, I listened and I compared my story. Oh, I haven't lost my license. I haven't, you know, haven't even been married once, let alone, you know, had four wives and, and always comparing, right? Instead of listening to what the speaker was talking about, their emotion and what they felt. And, you know, later on, I was able to do that. And in, uh, in 1985, my mother went to this, this, uh, this deal for old people where they talked about nutrition and this and that. And, and, uh, and she met this man there, his name was Joe Cushing. He's left us these days, but he, uh, he got up and I had a tape. She brought this tape and he said, you know, yes, I'm going to talk about nutrition and alcoholism. Uh, but first and foremost, my name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic. I thought, and you're at the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto telling a group of old ladies this story? Like, buddy. But a part of me still admired that he could do it. And I called Joe and that be, began a 19 year uh, sponsorship, friendship, amazing relationship. What, what Joe Cushing taught me, I, I, I believe my own father would have loved to have instilled some of the things about being an adult, being a man, being a sober guy, and just didn't have the tools to do it, you know? Um, yeah, my, uh, when that guy died, I, I tell you, I, if you're new to form a relationship with another human being like that, a, a sponsor, to me was, you know, maybe the most important thing about it all, you know, that he could sort of guide me through his experience. There was something, you know, I, of course, struggled with the God thing. I, I grew up in not only Catholic schools, but Catholic high schools and just wanted no part of it. Right. And uh, and Joe was a devout Catholic. Like he started his day every day going to the church next door to his home. And that's how he started his day with a seven o'clock mass. Not once in 19 years did he ever say, hey, buddy, you know, you're, you used to be Catholic. Uh, why don't you think about coming along here to the church? Not once, because if I was going to get there, I'd get there, you know, uh, and that meant a lot that he would, you know, it worked for him. He would tell me how it worked for him, but he would never suggest that I, you know, jump on board with it. And I, I, in my absolute down, you know, nothing left to live for sort of thing, I had a bad car accident and and that was the turning point, that that moment of clarity where I was open to things, you know. And so this time in the, in the program, I, I I was able to hear, you know. Um, I, I'll tell you right now, traditional AA saved my life without question, without question, right? I followed the steps. I I tried to dispel whatever 
Catholicism was lurking. Took me about 15 years to get rid of that part of things for me. It just, you know, I, I just didn't, I, I, I didn't need any of that sort of spirituality, you know. Um, but I certainly opened a door that that probably the last 30 years I continued to explore because anything that was sort of about a, a god and that word just was not sitting well with me, you know. Um, yet I still was able to work the steps and to find a place where where something outside was helping me, I guess, you know. Um, now, again, as they went along the road, things changed, right? I went through some darkness after a few years of sobriety where life was fantastic. I found myself taking over-the-counter cough syrup in a legitimate illness and, uh, and really having trouble sharing that because the, the fucking shame, like I had more money than I'd ever had in my life. Why aren't I taking cocaine? Why aren't I drinking again? Why aren't I? I didn't do any of those things, but this nasty little cough syrup it held on to me. I, I I went through depression like I didn't know was possible. I ended up in in Tucson, Arizona for six months. That was that was Joe knew some people that had a community down there. That uh, that again he uh, Joe was was a uh, a therapist for adult children, and uh, you know that came to to help as well having a sponsor who had uh, you know a knowledge of those types of issues. And that's what I needed to look at. I had never, my father died a horrific death of cancer when I was 21 years old. I never could bury him because I felt like I, I was fully in my own alcoholism. And as much as his alcoholism had affected me, I still loved him dearly, right? And yet I couldn't get rid of this, this shame and guilt that I'd felt when he died. I, I felt like I had not been there for him in, in a way that I, could have been you know um so and then my relationship with my mother my dad dies and instead of a i'm the only one at home of course so instead of instead of a mother and a son coming together we just went our separate ways you know just didn't have that emotional connection at all and so the next few years i spent uh, learning about what i felt about things I, I i would always intellectualize everything i could tell you a story about fucking anything right that you know that made sense to me right but i didn't know how i felt about a thing and i certainly didn't feel any lovability that was something that that at the deepest part of me even though i'd had these you know very good years of sobriety i still was self-loathing plain and simple beat myself up every single night that was my 10th step at night you know why the fuck did you say that why did you why didn't you get you know story after story after story and and, and that needed to stop i was so brutal with myself you know um and i found that i found this place in arizona where this community just helped me to purge i remember getting in touch with shit that had gone on for me as a kid um where i was sobbing until i was puking this hurt was coming out that deeply, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't wish that upon anyone, but I'm telling you what, what I tried to put in there, like, this will help, this will, this will make me feel a little bit better in a, in a recovery way, uh, without purging, even though I'd done, you know, my four steps, certainly to the best of my ability, right, um, and worked the steps and was active in the program. Something else needed to go on for me. It was that simple. Had it not been the cough syrup, it would have been something else. It had been sex. It had been a variety of things, you know? 
Um, so anyway, I came back from that experience like with my eyes open and, and, and began to look at a lot of different things. I, I enjoyed the work of John Bradshaw and a fellow, uh, Ernie Larson, who um, he passed away a little bit here, but he, he was a guy who, uh, a therapist who, and also a recovery guy, but he had a, a, a mantra, what we live with, we learn, what we learn, we practice, what we practice, we become, and it has consequences. And he was, he was all about relationships, you know? And for me, you know, I, I buried my father finally, you know, I went to, I'd never been to his grave. I went to his grave when I got home from Arizona, had a remarkable experience to say the least. I just felt a sense of, of freedom, you know, that it was closed, that he was okay with me and I was okay with him. And that was, that was special, you know? gets me every time I talk about that it gets me emotional in a very good way because closure on these things is is vital to to me being okay today you know my mother we uh, you know I could tell you all about Joe Cushing but I would never give credit to this woman who went up to him at her tea deal in in Royal York and said can you help my son can you help my son that's how it started was my mother reaching out to this alcoholic guy because she cared, you know? So she and I had 10 year, good years before she passed. And, and I knew I wouldn't have shed a tear at her death because, because of that lack of closeness. I absolutely shed lots of tears when I lost her, you know? I, I had reconnected with that, uh, you know, she had done a lot of good things for me in her life, plain and simply. And in my recovery, I know she was proud of me, you know? Um, and that, that means a lot to me, that stuff, right? Okay, so let's, let's bounce along here. So much uh, stuff, you know, and different things at different times. But right now, um, I got to a point in traditional AA, and, and like I said to you, I'm going to be the first to say it saved my life, plain and simply, right? But I got to a point, I just couldn't take one more, one more slogan, one more, you know, you just do this, 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 almost cookie cutter recovery. And, and I began to see how others were, uh, were looking at things more openly, more free thinking. And of course, then beginning to meet people who never believed in God, who never had a higher power and were 40, 50 years sober. Guys like Jeb, who, you know, I'd go like, holy shit. Like, this is amazing, right? To, to meet these people. So, um, Again, you know, my, my best friend was uh, one of the people who was involved with starting the Toronto deal, Joe C., you know, Joe, right? Joe has been in Ireland here so many times. Um, so even having him as my best friend, I'd go to meetings, I'd take my sponsee to the secular meetings, a couple of them. Two of my sponsees came back and started secular meetings here, but I never, I never made the leap into the meetings, right? Like I say, I would go like Joe's medallions or, you know, speak there or whatever, but I just never made the leap, right? And I think that was out of loyalty to what traditional AA had given me. I, I would have felt like, like I was turning my back on it, you know, and I don't see it that way today at all. I love, love listening. Like Zoom has changed everything for me, right? Um, Joseph, why don't you come along and, and check out some online? And of course, you know, I'm home, so why don't I? And, you know, started going to Queen Street, Toronto, met Mark, and he 
open the door to Ireland and, you know, Joe and I came in week two and been here ever since, right? Um, you know, that's so, so cool, right? But the most important thing that, that goes on for me now is I'm listening to young people, and I don't necessarily mean young in age, but young in recovery, people who are getting sober through secular Zoom meetings. It's fucking amazing to listen to people who have never even opened the big book um, and haven't needed to. There's lots of other information. There's other ways to get sober, it turns out, you know? And, and what I've liked about it is the kind of free thinking that I hear. I, I'm talking about some things right now that like I, I probably wouldn't stand up in front of a group of people in a traditional meeting and say, but I feel very comfortable saying it here because this is just my story, right? Take from it what you will, uh, you know? I listen to your story the same way. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's exciting to see this new thing unfold. You know, I travel around different meetings around the world, and it's like wow, like it's the same, but it's different. And I, what's important, what's super important to me, is I always how do we start the oh, is there anybody here in the first thirty days of sobriety? Because you are the most important person in the room. You are the most important person in the room. And I see that, I don't care if I'm in Ireland, Toronto, or England, or wherever, Australia, you know, different places that that's, that's important. You know, how we do this thing, that's individual, obviously. And I'm seeing just how individual it is, right? Um, so I, I find myself, so what I've been doing this a year and a bit, I guess the Zoom thing, and I find myself feeling like somewhat new like I, I know the importance of what the decades of recovery has meant to me and that I want to be able to share those with other human beings, right? And at the same time, be open to this new thing where many, many people are not working the steps traditionally because it did not work for them, you know, and finding new ways to get to the same place to enjoy their lives. So what else did I want to, oh, yeah. I guess relationships today, you know, um, when I like you, you're really going to know it because I'm not afraid to share myself emotionally. You know, I, I speak to my Irish friends who have so, you know, Kim and I, my friend Kim down here is, is from Oregon, as we can say. I said Oregon. Oh, my God. From Oregon. Uh, we are both members. I hope you don't mind me saying this of the secular Irish group. And, and for these people like Annie and Damien and, you know, Declan, and just uh, our friend Don, of course, to, to uh, Shirley, our newest, you know, here's Shirley from British Columbia, like, oh my God, right? Again, another person brought into the fold in Ireland, right? That's pretty damn cool stuff, right? Um, and most of my relationships, you know, the friendships I have, the friendship I have that with, with Joe, that is, uh, we've had, we've been, like friends for about 35 years, but best friends for almost 30, you know, and, uh, and he's the real deal. Like when I, to this day, Joe's sponsor died at the, just around the same time Joe Cushing died for me. And uh, so Joe and I just started sponsoring each other, right? Um, you know, we, we've been around, we don't need each other every day or every week. But when I got something going on, like, hello, buddy, I need to purge a little bit. And he's right there for me. And I for him, you know, we are looking at uh, at moving. I, I live in, in just outside of Toronto, Canada, 
and we're looking to moving to Eastern Canada down to New Brunswick, the province of New Brunswick. And I'm telling you, the shit that's going on for me as I sort of purge this house, we have lived here 27 years. I never lived anywhere as a kid or a young adult for longer than two. So I didn't know just what was going to go on here until I started to like have to get rid of shit and to pack up and to the, the, the thought of just letting go of this house, like, holy shit, you know? I mean, I will process it accordingly and we will move on because this is a, an adventure for my partner and I, right? I, I am married to a woman who I adore. We've been together. The day that I buried my father, I met this woman that night, right? And uh, wow, like, you know, you hear people say, oh, I love you more than I, well, I can tell you right now that my love of her, my admiration of her, um, we were just, we, we walk every night right now, right? And uh, I said, it's almost ridiculous the amount of time that you and I can spend together, right? I have a, a young fellow I sponsor who, uh, he comes over for a walk on Tuesdays, right? And I'm like, it's almost like now I feel like he's taking he walk time away from you. And she's like, hey, it's only one night, right? But the point being that to go through what we all are going through with this sort of isolation and pandemic and have, you know, someone there, it's really cool. But to add this, you know, the friendships I'm making each day on Zoom, you know, this young fellow, Mr. Mark Tasnua, like, I just love this kid, right? And uh, can't wait to meet him in real life. Anyway, I don't know. I think I, I've kind of said enough. The last thing I'll share with you is I, I think because life was serious with all of the moving, I, I never, like, childhood wasn't normal. So I didn't really ever learn to play as a child, you know? And, uh, and, and it was only a counselor that kind of opened that door for me. She, she threw me this little pound puppy when in, in, in this therapy session. She said, take that home and play with it. And I'm like, fucking stupid little puppet dog. Are you kidding me? Right. But I wanted to be open. So I did. I took the pound puppy home and, and it opened up something. It opened up a, like a, a part of me, that innocence that is childhood, you know, to this day, like you look, my, my desk has always got things like, I don't know, can we see this? This is a store that no longer is called Eaton's, right? This is the fun farm where you go and get on the cow and have your picture taken, right? I mean, that's healthy, right? This is my 1910 hearing aid battery because you have to have one of these on your desk. You know that, right? Do you have, do you have one of these on your, no? Then I have my rocking chair grandma, you know, you just, I like wind up toys a lot. Right, so I have tons of wind-up toys. Right, then I have um, I have some matches. When you used to have the front front strikers, you know, so that you could burn this one, and then all the rest of your fingers could get burned. You remember these days? Right, they were lovely. What else? Oh, how can you have a desk that doesn't have a pair of 1935 Monopoly um, tickets to you know Pacific Avenue? There's there's more, but I won't bore you with it. Uh, oh, wait, this one. This is a good one. Look at this. Plug. I don't have the, the rest of the train to plug it into, right? But I have this. So there we go. That's how I do it today. And I so thank you for uh, being here for me and listening today. Thank you.